Well, good afternoon and uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marianne Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst uh, here at Cato. Thank you all for coming. Earlier today, Queen Elizabeth II has become the longest serving monarch in British history, surpassing her great-great-grandmother's Victoria's extraordinary reign, which lasted 63 years and 216 days. It is therefore quite fortuitous that today we are able to host one of Britain's best-known, much-loved, and occasionally controversial historians, Dr. David Starkey. When David was asked to evaluate the Queen Elizabeth's 63 years on the throne last week, he replied that she has done and said nothing that anybody will remember. And I wish I could say the same about our head of state. Alas, succession of our leaders here in the United States have been very busy, and the cumulative effect of all that business is that America has fallen to the 20th place in the Human Freedom Index and the 12th place in the Economic Freedom of the World Index. But of course, struggle for freedom is not new. As David Starkey documents in his new book, Magna Carta, The Medieval Roots of Modern Politics, our liberties are the result of a series of violent struggles fought over 800 years that at times have threatened to tear Western societies apart. On the front line of the battle for freedom was a document originally inked on animal skin called Magna Carta. In his book, Starkey looks at the origins of the Great Charter created in 1215 to check the abuses of King John and how it nearly died at birth. He explores its subsequent deployment, its contribution to making everyone, even the monarch, subject to the rule of law, and how this quintessentially English document migrated to North America, where it eventually became the foundation of the US Constitution. Magna Carta has become a universal symbol of individual freedom against the tyranny of the state but with ever-tightening government control of our lives, is it time to resurrect it? David Starkey is an honorary fellow of the Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, and the author of Elizabeth, Six Wives, the Queens of Henry VIII, and Henry, Virtuous Prince. He's a winner of uh, Norton Medlicott Medal for Services to History and W.H. Smith Prize. He's well known for his historical television series focusing on Tudors, monarchy, and Britain, as well as his radio appearances. He was made commander of the British Empire in 2007. With that, please help me welcome David Starkey. Uh, Marion, thank you. Uh, indeed, happy fortuitous on the 9th of September. What did we do? Um, a few months ago, on the 15th of June, there was, of course, the actual literal anniversary of Magna Carta. Not the signing, but the sealing in a field called Runnymede on the south banks of the Thames between Windsor, then as now, 
the headquarters of the monarchy and a rather deplorable place called Staines, uh, which was the forward base of the barons. Because, of course, the real reason that Magna Carta happens, which is carefully left out of all the textbooks, is because of the city of London. Magna Carta happens because the barons seize London, or rather, London surrenders itself to the barons. At the moment that's happened, John is finished. Anyway... It was at this place, why Runnymede? Runnymede, for the simple reason, it was chosen. This did not go down at all well, Marion, when I was lecturing to the great and good of Surrey, uh, the county where all this happened. It was chosen because it was a bog. It's a place, it's moist, wet ground. It's a water meadow. In other words, it's a place that you can talk, but you can't fight. It's jaw-jaw, not war-war. And to commemorate this event, we sent, as we always do in England, when we're not sure what to do, we sent the Queen. It is, of course, a ludicrous way of commemorating the second greatest humiliation in the history of the English monarchy. I leave out the unfortunate little events that are responsible for this building and this country. Uh, and, 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 and the, uh, the first, of course the most profound humiliation, whose anniversary is coming up in a mere four years' time, is the execution of King Charles I, lineal ancestor, um, as it happens, of the Queen. I wonder, will we commemorate that unfortunate event by sending Her Majesty to Whitehall to try out an elegant bronze block erected at first floor level outside the windows of the banqueting house. Because, of course, if Magna Carta, the whole point of this, if Magna Carta had happened, there wouldn't have been a monarchy. There would have been no monarch in 20... If Magna Carta had survived, if the first Magna Carta had actually survived, there would not have been a monarchy in 2015 to commemorate it. What I want to do with you today is to recover the sense of the infinite radicalism of the first text of Magna Carta. The fact that it failed utterly and completely, the Magna Carta of 1215 is a dead letter within a matter of weeks. It does not survive. And it was an extremely good thing that it did not survive if it had done England, and we are, of course, talking very narrowly about England, England would have become probably either a cross uh, between the aristocratic Republic of Venice or the even more catastrophic monarchy of Poland with an aristocratic liberum veto. So Magna Carta itself, we need to recover the sense, is a profoundly, deeply difficult and ambiguous document. It's not something that is simply rah-rah, what a very good thing. Let's now look, therefore, at how we contextualise this. Let me uh, now just quickly pause. I didn't know I was going to be introduced by the Queen. Uh, I'm used to that sort of precedence, of course, but I wasn't quite aware. Let me come and, and, uh, and revert now to the introduction that I thought I was going to give, which is, of course, to refer to what we call football in England, soccer, which I know nothing about at all, apart from the fact that it generates some of the most inane, sport always does, some of the most inane remarks in the language. And one of them is that football is a game of two halves. Well, I think this morning is going to be, this lunchtime, is going to be two halves. Jono, I think, is going to talk largely, as has been hinted by Marion, on the questions of principle. 
I'm a historian. I'm not interested in principles. <laughs> I was inoculated to principle by my mother. My mother always used the word principle, and it had a very simple meaning. It was something that she felt so strongly about that she was unwilling to listen to reason on the subject. <laughs> what I'm going to talk about is something very different. I'm going to talk about practicalities and process, how Magna Carta came about, and to argue that it is the process, it's the how it came about, which is much more important than, as it were, the grandiose principles which have been deduced from it. There is, however, a very clear point of linkage, Joan, you will be pleased to know. We're not, not going to be totally like ships in the night, you know, crossing, whatever. Um, uh, the, the point is what happens to Magna Carta 400, four, uh, um, where are we, 400 years uh, after it's created in the early 17th century, when it's already ancient history. And in the early 17th century, precisely that process of abstraction of Magna Carta and turning it into a list of principles happens. And it is from that directly via Edward Cook, as you can tell if you go and look at the doors of the Supreme Court, uh, where he actually appears in a bronze relief along with Magna Carta itself. And it is from Cook's handling of Magna Carta that the entire, I think, your rights-based concepts of law and of politics derives. In other words, the axial document is a Magna Carta, the historical tradition of Magna Carta, but above all, the reworking and reconceptualizing of it in 1628 in the Petition of Right. Um, and the astonishing phrase of Cook, which not only, I think, leads to, if it were, directly the Bill of Rights, but I think the concept of a Supreme Court and um, a, a kind of, of constitution written in iron and bronze and unchangeable, um, which is Magna Carta is such a fellow that he will have no sovereign. In other words, law itself is sovereign. That's going to be the point of contact. Right, let's go back and then analyse this process by which it happens and why it happens, how it happens, and what the consequences are for what I would call our view of the proper political process. Now, to sing the praise of the political process in 2015 on either side of the Atlantic is a deeply rash enterprise. The political, isn't it? The political process is held in profound contempt by a very large part of democratic electorates. And I think this is a very serious problem. I am going to sing its praises, and I'm going to sing them loudly and without reservation. I am, after all, a contrarian. So when everybody else is despairing in it, I'm going to say we need to discover it, rediscover it, and praise it loudly. Let's then look at what happens in 1215, uh, try and get some sense of why it happens very quickly, and then look at what I call the Magna Carta decade. Because if the Magna Carta of 1215 fails and is an absolute failure, the reason for its success are the events of another decade. We all forget, because our fondness for single anniversaries, that 1215 is only the first of a continuous series of reissues of Magna Carta, which go on until 1297. The key ones take place in the decade 1215 to 1225, but they are documents of an absolutely <laughs> radically different nature 
and are the product of radically different political circumstances. And until we understand, this is where the historian comes in, until we understand that specificity, that local quality, we will understand nothing at all. Right, why then does Magna Carta happen at all? We were again talking uh, and uh, when, when we, we were all assembling uh, uh, before this, uh, this afternoon's session, we were talking about the uh, remarkable resemblance between so much modern politics and earlier monarchical and court politics. And one of the points at which, of course, they all centre is the question of the actual personality of the ruler, the president, whoever. The key to understanding why Magna Carta happens is John. John is a younger brother of extreme ambition, an ambition that hugely overtakes his ability. In other words, in Britain, you can make the perfect remark, um, he is a milliband. He is a milliband junior. Um, he becomes king largely by accident and murder. Uh, more or less the same process that produced Ed Miliband, uh, 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 um, uh, uh, and with almost, whereas we can now see with equally disastrous consequences. I mean, you know, look at look at look at the suicide of the Labour Party. Anyway, John becomes king in 1199, and again to get this sense, he is by far the most powerful ruler in Europe. We're very fond, aren't we, many of us in this room, of talking about Anglospheres and all the rest of it. The concept of something distinct, distinct and separate about England, the Anglosphere, English-based civilization, is totally and completely incomprehensible before 1530. In the Middle Ages, England is invariably part of some form of enormous cross-continental empire. And its political institutions are fundamentally similar. And we really do need to understand this. The, the channel only becomes the widest strip of water in the world in the reign of Henry VIII, in which values change mysteriously between Calais uh, and, and Dover, uh, as unfortunately our immigrant class hasn't yet discovered. But the, it will happen. It will happen. The, um, so the, the, um, John then rules over... This extraordinary empire, which stretches from Scotland through Wales, <coughs> Ireland, and the whole of Western France, which he then proceeds to lose. The key to understanding John is in the splendid phrase of Oscar Wilde uh, in The Importance of Being Earnest. That was on the subject of babies. You will remember that to lose one is a misfortune. Uh, to, 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 to lose two looks like carelessness. John committed the carelessness of losing two empires in very quick succession. In other words, Magna Carta is a product of imperial recession. It's the loss of power, the loss of empire. First, he loses the better half of his French lands against Philip Augustus. Then he uses, what was always the case, the immense wealth of England to try to create a second empire in the British Isles with enormous pressure against Scotland and against Wales. And he does it, of course, by screwing the riches of England and he attacks frontally the two key riches groups, one of which is the landed aristocracy. Now, the landed aristocracy tend to have a very, very bad name, um, which they largely deserve. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a great element of, of kind of privileged brat pack about them. What's striking about the barons, even at the height of the crisis of Magna Carta, they can't do without a joust. 
which is rugby on horseback. You know, they risk, they risk their, their, or American football on horseback, uh, uh, with, a, with a frank admission of the intent to do harm to the opposite party. Um, they, 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 they are like that. But they're also, of course, each one of them is a corporation. They are the masters of thousands and tens of thousands of acres. Many of them are surprisingly well-educated, rarely in Latin, but tolerably so. And, but above all, they're able to employ highly skilled, and they have to employ, highly skilled accountants, lawyers, and clergy who can act as theoreticians. Okay. So this group is then put under immense pressure um, by the manipulation of the legal process and so on to, to yield large quantities of money to the king. So is the other, and this is the great point of variation between the world then and the world now. <clears throat> In the uh, England of 1215, the other, by far the richest group, is the church. Uh, when you go around England and many of you will know it at least as well as I do, um, one of its great marvels are the wonderful cathedrals. And we tend to look at those buildings and to think of them erected out of the piety, the pious pennies of, of self-denying peasants. Ladies and gentlemen, nothing could be further from the truth. The cathedrals are the expression of an overweening clerical elite which has roughly the same morals and practices as modern Wall Street bankers. My cathedral front is wider than your West Cathedral. My West Front is bigger than your West Front. My spire is bigger than your spire, said the abbot to the bishop sort of thing. That, that, that's that world. And so what happens is John also screws this body. But again, what we also need to put into mind are two very different facts about the church. One is that it is an pan-European institutional body. It is the direct ancestor of the EU. The EU has got two direct ancestors. One is the Roman Church and the other is the Roman Empire. And its structures are very, and certainly the Napoleonic Empire, and its structures are very closely related to both. So obviously, attack one member of it and the head in Rome responds. And the second thing that we forget, uh, and it's something that we mustn't forget, the church is a completely separate system of law. It's a separate system of law, um, which is at least as powerful in many ways uh, in its effect as, as, as secular law. I mean, if you look at church law in England right through, even after the royal supremacy, right through to the 19th century, it controls all testamentary jurisdictions. The entire process, of, you know, in subject that's dear to the heart of everybody in this room, the whole subject of property is dealt with by church law and, until the 19th century. So this gives you some idea of, of its power. And of course it is, it is the intellectual powerhouse. And the man who was Archbishop of Canterbury was the leading scholar of the day in the leading university of the day, Stephen Langton, uh, in Paris, because this is the great, these are the glory days of the Sorbonne, which it has to be said it's never fully recovered, but I speak as a, as, speak as a member of the University of Cambridge, but there we are. Um, so uh, that, and that's the background. And uh, John then, all of these endeavours, the loss of the French Empire, the enormous pressure against the English elite, the uh, pressure against the Celtic fringe of England, all of these things come to a tremendous climax in 1212. In 1212, John launches a huge campaign 
against the Welsh. And taking a leaf out of uh, Donald Rumsfeld's book, there's a little bit of shock and awe. So what he does to bring home to the Welsh that he really means business, he hangs 22 handsome young Welsh aristocratic hostages simultaneously from the walls of a castle. You know, that's the shock and awe. At which point it's revealed to him that his two most important no, two, most, two of his most important secular nobles, a man called Sir de Quincy, the Earl of Winchester, and the, um, uh, what is the real, the, the real key figure in all of this, a man called Robert Fitzwalter, who's a great lord in the north, in East Anglia, but he's also a great figure in the city of London, both militarily, as the captain of the second largest castle in London, of the city militia, and also huge economic interests as a vintner. And if you look in Magna Carta, you will see astonishing attention is given to wine measures and the victualling trade, for the very obvious good connections of Fitzwater. These two of them plot to surrender John to the Welsh. You can imagine what would have been done to John uh, after he'd hanged 22 handsome young Welsh hostages. The plot is revealed. The two flee, of course. They flee to Paris. John then embarks on this extraordinary attempt uh, at re-establishing himself. He reconciles himself with the church, with the pope, and he wriggles out of the, uh, uh, the, the, the interdict, the, the, the excommunication, not simply of him, but of the whole of England, uh, reconciles himself to Pope Innocent III, and he tries a last desperate throw of the dice against Philip Augustus, his arrival at France, and there's one of those very rare things in the Middle Ages, an absolutely decisive battle. It's the Battle of Bouvines, in 1214, and ladies and gentlemen, John, it's brilliantly conceived, it's on a church Chilean scale. There's an invasion of France from the West, a European commission, uh, a European commission, a European coalition. <laughs> oh, oh, that uh, masterly slip of the tongue. Uh, uh, um, uh, invading, invade, invading from the East. Um, uh, but it all meets a terrible failure at the Battle of Bouvines. It's an absolute and total defeat for John. And it is this <clears throat> combination of the loss of empire, this immense pressure that he's brought to bear on, uh, by perversion of legal process and so on, on his political class. And finally, irreversible, irrefutable military defeat. Okay, that's the background. Very events now begin to move rather quickly. John is confronted the Battle of Bouvines in 1214. At Christmas 1214, he's confronted by a body of the barons demanding something very strange. There had, of course, been lots of rebellions against earlier kings. John's effectiveness in eliminating opposition. In other words, he solved the problem of opposition. Previous rebellions always took place in the name of a rival junior member of the royal house. John had solved this problem by killing them all. There weren't any. So what you have to do, you have to innovate. You rebel not in the name of a person, but of an idea. And the idea is a charter, which is a form of document that will limit the excesses of the king. Incidentally, the idea had first been invented by John's great-grandfather, Henry I, who's another younger son who seizes the throne by usurpation, and he puts forward a manifesto. You know, just like a modern political party coming to power that promises, you know, motherhood and, and apple pie and whatever, and the moment is in power is forgotten. Uh, but the barons don't forget this, and they constantly hark back to it. John says, come back at Easter. They come back. He says, I still can't decide. Come back in a few weeks. And it's at this point 
that the events, I've alluded to them very quickly at the beginning, John's defeat is now turned into catastrophe because in May, London opens its gates to the rebel barons. And the barons never lose control of London. Now, this is decisive. John loses what's left of his treasure, his administration, his prestige, his capital. He's finished. That happens on the 17th of May. Within less than two weeks, we call it a fortnight, John is negotiating at Runnymede with the barons. And the thing that is the measure of his absolute failure is that his negotiator is the man who'd been his leading ecclesiastical opponent, Stephen Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Very quickly, John, he's got no capital, is forced to come to an agreement. And the agreement, and this is where I think we do need now to, to, to grasp the extraordinarily remarkable nature of the Magna Carta of 1215. The Magna Carta of 1215 is an utterly devastatingly radical document. What makes it even more wonderful, you refer to the fact they're all written on animal skin, we not only have the Magna Carta, we have the drafts. We have the actual draft of the document, the Articles of the Barons, which was physically presented to uh, Langton at Runnymede. And ladies and gentlemen, it looks just like a modern negotiating document. Each clause is given in essence, each clause of Magna Carta is reduced to about four or five key phrases. And to what do you begin each line with? What do you and I begin each line with when we put a forward a memorandum or heads of an agreement, well, we begin, don't we, with a bullet point. Ladies and gentlemen, 800 years before Microsoft, every line of the Articles of the Barons begins with a bullet point. There is a paraph mark, just like, in fact, um, a, 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 a bass clef in music, but with the tail turned round the other way. And you go through, and all of the key clauses of Magna Carta are there in brief. But, ladies and gentlemen, there's one remarkable thing. Towards the end of the document, it changes. Towards the end of the document, you get continuous Latin prose. And the Latin prose are the bits of Magna Carta that the barons didn't trust the clerks of the king's chancery to develop in full. Because what they wanted was their exact words. And the clauses that they regard as mattering, that they draft out fully, are clauses of genuine revolution. And they are genuinely republican. What the barons do is set up a committee of public safety of 25 barons. They say that this committee of 25 barons will adjudicate all cases between the king and the barons. And when they found in favor of the barons, which surprisingly they invariably do, the king has no time at all two or three days, to put into full execution the judgment of the barons. And if he doesn't, they license themselves to levy civil war upon him, only accepting the life of the king, the queen, and the prince. They actually, the phrase, the Latin phrase is doing him as much damage as possible. And to make sure this happens, and this again, you know, this gives you a sense of the revolutionary nature of the document, Everybody in England is required to replace the oath of allegiance to the sovereign with an oath to the charter. And not only with an oath to the charter, but an oath to the 25 barons, to the judgment of the 25 barons, and to participate in the process of the levying of civil war. Do you all see what I mean? Now, 
Add, add to that, at the same time as agreeing this document, John is also forced to agree uh, to a treaty for the custody of London, which is the most humiliating document that an English king, I think, has ever sealed. It simply takes the form of an indenture, the most basic, unhonorific form of legal agreement, and the barons say to the king, we hold London. If you do exactly what we want within two months, they give him a deadline, they give him an ultimatum of the 15th of August, this, it's happening on the 15th of June, if you do exactly what we want by the 15th of August, we'll give you London back. If, we, if you don't, we won't, and you can whistle for it. It's just extraordinary. So this is the document that John has to agree to, that has been revered and whatever. The two key things. First of all, it leads to direct civil war. The document is so contentious that John, who had had absolutely no support before Magna Carta, is able to muster a significant party to fight for him. And secondly, the fact that it has been so manifestly extorted by duress means that it is of no validity in law, and particularly no validity in canon law, which enables the Pope to exonerate him from his oath. There's then, to cut a long story short, a savage civil war which John begins to win and at which point our two favourite barons, de Quincey and Fitzwalter, realising they fail, face failure, treason and everything else, run over to Paris and they offer the throne of England to the heir to the throne of France, Prince Louis, who invades England with a very powerful force. Of course, he's got London. The capital surrenders to him. John collapses. The royalist forces fail, and within a few months, the royalists only have four castles. They've got Lincoln, they've got, uh, they've got uh, Dover, uh, they've got, um, uh, um, uh, what's the thing called, Windsor, and Rochester in the southeast of England. Everything is lost. John uh, dies um, at Newark, uh, allegedly of a surfeit of peaches. He had a gluttonous appetite, and his body is carted off to Worcester to be buried. Now, at that point, ladies and gentlemen, England should be over. The whole notion of an Anglosphere should be finished. And what is completely striking about it is Louis and the barons in this civil war had made no attempt whatever at reissuing Magna Carta. Instead, there's a total reversal. John's heir is a little boy of nine. And we've already seen from the photographs of Prince George and Princess Caroline that the entire world is a sucker for a royal kid. So there is a coronation of a nine-year-old in diddy little robes and with a little bracelet borrowed from his mother, and the entire nation goes, uh, you know, we all, we, we, we all sigh. Um, but much more importantly, there's this extraordinary fact of a Tory with a brain. Maybe one could make it even more radical statement, a Republican uh, with a brain. Um, we, 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 we have William the Marshal, Earl of Pembroke, who becomes regent. And Marshall does something. This is where everything now gets really exciting. Marshall had fought Magna Carta tooth and nail. He'd risked everything in resisting it. And yet he decides as a regent of the boy king within 13 days of his father's death to re issue it. But he reissues, and this is the key to understanding it, it is a completely different Magna Carta. The Magna Carta of 1215 is four and a half thousand words. It takes an entire sheep to write it on. The Magna Carta of 1216, more than a third of the text has gone. The Magna Carta of 1215 is 60 clauses. The Magna Carta of 1216 is 40. 
What's gone? Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you're familiar with the rather splendid, we're all interested in politics here, that wonderful television series, Yes, Minister. Magna Carta's been Sir Humphrey-ized. <laughs> Everything difficult has been cut out. All of those clauses setting up committees of public safety, um, uh, licensing rebellion, all of that's gone. The question of the treatment of Jewish bankers has gone. Uh, the business of forest law has gone. Everything is difficult. And it's even better. Sir Humphrey tells you what he's doing. There's this marvellous phrase at the end of the reissue charter which says, um, of course, it was entirely, Sir Humphrey, entirely right and proper that all of these weighty and difficult subjects were considered. However, they were really rather awkward. So we've set up a committee. <laughs> Everything is shunted into a committee where it, you know, it, it, it sort of squirms you know, like a laundry basket and only the stuff relating to forest law ever comes out. So what Magna Carta is, the Magna Carta that goes into law is a balance of extreme left of 1215 and the compromise ground of the right in 1260. But the final coup in all of this is there's still one thing that's very much missing from the Magna Carta of 1216. The king in whose name it's issued is a minor. What is the king going to do when he becomes an adult? Will he follow the line of his regent or will he follow the line of his father? One man takes charge, and that's Stephen Langton, who comes, has a sort of second career in his late 70s. Not everybody dies at 20 in the Middle Ages. And Langton sets himself the task of making sure that the boy king, as he becomes an adult, will reissue the charter in an unchallenged fashion in his own name. In other words, eliminate the issue of consent. Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time, I've sort of come up with an idea of principle please forget it. How does the Archbishop of Canterbury get the King of England to agree to issue the definitive text of Magna Carta? He takes a leaf out of the book of Seb Blatter. He bribes him. There is a meeting of a proto-parliament which votes up to that point the largest single grant of taxation which had been so agreed, but it's offered to the King on terms. If you reissue the charter, we'll give you the tax. If you don't, we won't. And the king takes one look at the pile of gold and silver and says, yippee, you've got your freedom. That's, that's the origin. But what again, you see, this seems to me, I've presented this in exactly the fashion that those who attack politics do. But the product of it, the product of this process, is two things. It's not... And do, do again, let's be very careful here. You don't suddenly get a notion of a king under law. The idea of a king under law is fought over viciously at the time of the Civil War, and four, four, 450 years later. What you do get, you get two things. You get a sense of the matter of government as being a dialogue between ruler and ruled. That's point one. Point two, you get it encapsulated, crystallized into a specific institutional form. Because that assembly, giving the grant of taxation in 1225, that assembly is the proto-parliament. 
The real fully developed proto-parliament whose anniversary are also celebrating uh, the, the, the parliament of, uh, of, 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 of Simon de Montfort, the 1265 parliament, harks back directly to that. And the whole notion of the grant of taxation in return for the redress of grievance becomes, again, the fundamental institutional base on which all the things that everybody in this room values and that we talk about endlessly depends. In other words, the key to understanding Magna Carta are not the isolated grandiose clauses, promising access to justice and whatever. What tells you they're meaningless is that they're still on the statute book in England, along with the clause promising the freedom of the church. Much good it did them under Henry VIII or the clause promising the freedom of the city of London. Much good it did them against Attlee. These grandiose clauses don't mean anything. It's the practical, detailed, institutional operations and consequences of that political process that does. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jonah Goldberg is a fellow of the American Enterprise Institute. He is a best-selling author and columnist uh, who's got a nationally syndicated column uh, which appears regularly in scores of newspapers across the United States. He's also a columnist for the Los Angeles Times and a member of the Board of Contributors to, to USA Today, contributor to Fox News and contributing editor to the National Review. He's the founding editor of National Review Online. Um, am I inflating your, your just keep on going. <laughs> uh, but I will say, though, that uh, Jonah Goldberg um, is uh, a, a, an author of two uh, New York bestsellers, uh, The Tyranny of Clichés and uh, Liberal Fascism, both of which I highly recommend to you. Uh, at AEI, he writes about political and cultural issues for the American.com and Enterprise blog. Please help me welcome Jonah Goldberg. Well, first of all, I want to say uh, I'm, I'm really honored to be here. It's great to be back in, at Cato. Um, and if, uh, if things are going the way they seem to be going in the conservative movement these days, uh, I may be coming here to seek sanctuary at some point soon. Um, Thanks to Stephen Langton. <laughs> uh, uh, I got to get that good Quasimodo lisp when I get to the top of the Thanks, Louie. So, um, uh, and it's funny, the Magna Carta, other than this uh, august uh, anniversary, was actually in the news recently, just staying on this point about what's going on in conservatism these days, when Ann Coulter said that Donald Trump's immigration platform was the greatest political document since the Magna Carta. Um, I think this, the statement speaks for itself. So uh, uh, when Marion asked me to be here, uh, I wasn't quite sure, you know, because when you say we're going to have a talk from an eminent historian about the Magna Carta, it doesn't automatically flow that you would then say, well, then get me Jonah Goldberg. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, but Marion had his ideas, and I'm glad he invited me because it's actually been a really great process for me, and I, I love the book, and I, I love listening to the talk. I did notice, though, that on Wikipedia, it had said that David was the, quote, rudest man in Britain. Um, which, at least going by the conversations I've had today and what I've heard today, is just another example of how Wikipedia sometimes gets things wrong. But uh, we'll see after my talk. Maybe he'll um, <laughs> reaffirm the accuracy of it. Um, so uh, a few thoughts about the American about 
Magna Carta. Um, first of all, I very much like the American innovation of putting a the in front of it. I know that the Brits say Magna Carta, well, we put the the in there, and apparently this has something to do with Latin not having definite articles or something, but I don't care. So if I say the Magna Carta, my apologies to those who it offends. Um, what I actually really enjoy and actually agree with quite a bit with David's talk is, and this is something of a personal evolution on my part in the last couple of years, is that I actually think that principles do emerge from history, not the other, but then again, principles then cha change subsequent history after they are established. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Deirdre McCloskey, and she'll point, she likes to point out that for about 250,000 years, uh, human beings lived in abject poverty everywhere in the world. And then that changed once and only once, and it happened remarkably recently, about 300 years ago, um, in Britain and the Netherlands. And if capitalism and the rule of law were natural phenomena, you might think it would have happened sometime earlier in the evolutionary record. Um, and so I'm actually, and maybe it's because I'm working on a book about this, I'm quite open to the idea that the principles that emerge, that the process of principle formation that comes out of the Magna Carta is an accidental and contingent process um, that, uh, you know, has to do with the vagaries of history more than it has to do with some delivering of tablets from on high. Uh, the, one of the things I like very much about David's approach to this is to demystify the notion of the aristocracy. Uh, we have a very American tendency to see the aristocracy as, or, or nobility and monarchy and all that as these uh, grandiose uh, institutions, as David was saying about the church, um, in England, and, and the, the, apparently the really problematic spread of spire envy um, among uh, various church officials. Um, and I've, you know, I've been thinking about this quite a bit lately in terms of, as we look at the, as I, to coin a phrase, the schadenfreude-tastic um, immolation of the Clinton uh, enterprise these days, uh, you look at things like the uh, the Clinton Foundation, and I, I've been calling them the tutors of the Ozarks for a while now, um, even though I think... Uh, you do flatter me. <laughs> uh, Medici works better, but it just doesn't have the same ring. But the point is the same, is that whether it's the Medicis or the tutors, doing good works and doing nice... Everyone says, oh, look at the wonderful things the Clinton Foundation did. Well, yes, the Clinton Foundation did do some good things, some good charitable things, but you have to look at it from the perspective of the Clintons. What they were, the good works that they were doing were the costs of doing business. That was the overhead for the real point of these things, which was to expand the empire of the Clinton name and the Clinton dynasty, and to get their name out and to uh, cultivate networks of, uh, of contacts throughout the sort of Schumpeterian new class all around America and the world. And if, if, if the, cost of doing that meant that you had to you know, treat some kids in the third world for blindness, well then so be it. But everyone seems to get the causality backwards. The, the Clinton Foundation got these relationships. Uh, the point of the Clinton Foundation was to cultivate these networks of donors and relationships and institutional relationships. And in order to do that, they had to justify it somehow by doing good things. It wasn't to do good things 
um, in the first place. And I think there's a lot of that, if you go back and you start looking at aristocracy, you know, the various nobilities and aristocracies did some wonderful things, um, built some really pretty buildings and fed some orphans and all of the rest. But part of the reason why they did that was to entrench their own power and to expand their own um, dynastic empires. Um, so let me, let me sort of get back to the Magna Carta for a moment. I think that David's treatment of it is, uh, and I'm, no, I'm not going to get into a debate about the TikTok of the Magna Carta with an eminent historian of the Magna Carta. I have no reason to question any of it. Um, but I think that one of the things that we, we should appreciate about the Magna Carta is that it was in fact, or the Magna Carta's, is that they were written down. And the mere fact of writing them down, sort of, this is one of the reasons why we still talk about the Code of Hammurabi. It's one of the reasons why the Constitution has, its effect, has, has been so lasting. When you write things down, they tend to last. And the mere fact that it was written down, that you were going to write laws or even just an agreement down that was going to bind rulers, at least in theory, was a fairly radical step forward. And when you look at the things that emerge from the Magna Carta, trial by jury, uh, representation without, uh, no taxation without representation, um, the dialogue that David was talking about, which you know, people like Michael Oakeshott would say is sort of essential to politics generally, this idea of a conversation among institutions. All of these things emerge organically and grow for a very long time, for centuries on end, and then the founding fathers in America, which um, I'm not entirely sure where David comes down on them, um, uh, they take these lessons and they translate them into one of the very first forms of real political science. And they talk about it in the Federalist Papers. And they take these lessons and they put them down on paper. And if you read the Federalist Papers, it is not a bunch of hot air and talk about highfalutin principles. I mean, the principles are in there. But it's also very much in the nitty gritty, grubby business of figuring out how to set up something that hasn't been set up before. And the importance of uh, everything from, you know, uh, pitting faction against faction and how you organize different branches of government. And that all, that all emerged organically from this process that begins with the Magna Carta. And it doesn't make those principles any less valuable or important simply because we can actually look at their DNA. Um, there's a tendency on the right, both on the, the, the sort of traditional right and also on the libertarian right, to talk about principles as if they are simply these golden, wonderful abstractions that define all the world. But the reality is, is that they, we've learned lessons, that the Hayekian process of trial and error leads us to certain conclusions that certain things work better than other things. You know, uh, I'm all in favor of the sort of Milton Friedman-esque approach to talking about capitalism as if it's just simply a function of liberty and that economic liberty is, is indivisible from all other forms of political liberty. I love that stuff. It's great. But I think it's also important to remember that Adam Smith didn't write down on paper how an economy should work. He was an empiricist who observed how the economy actually works. And there's a heavy dose of empiricism that lurks deeply within both the conservative and libertarian traditions that I think that we should do well to re-embrace. It doesn't mean we have to give up our principles. But there's nothing wrong with saying, here's how we got those principles. And if you have, as I believe, um, this wonderful and glorious accident that comes with the sort of the, 
you can call it the Lockean revolution, even though a lot of what David's writing about is sort of a rebuke to Locke and to Hobbes and this idea that you can found a liberal republic ex nihilo. Um, you can't. It actually has to grow up organically. But whatever you want to call it, whether you want to call it the Lockean Revolution or the, the British tradition and all the rest, this thing only happened once in human history. And it has been the greatest single boon to mankind in human history. And it all happens because people took these lessons from trial and error that come out of this process from the Magna Carta and a few other things, and they said, OK, we've distilled this down to a bunch of principles, practical principles. The American Revolution was a successful revolution precisely because it understood human nature to be flawed, that we were built from the crooked timber of humanity, that, that you have to align institutions that run with the grain of human nature. And, they, and that lesson comes out of the, the experience with the Magna Carta. And they said, let's put it on paper so we don't forget it which is also an idea that largely comes from the Magna Carta. And that is an important and glorious thing. And what I look at, and we were talking about a little bit about this in the green room, and I know I don't have much time, but when we were talking about this in the green room, um, I look around, both on the left and the right, and I see signs of what, what David called neo-medievalism. There is this corruption that is going on um, on the right these days. Um, where, we are, where a lot of my friends are willing to throw out a lot of these principles that people have fought and bled over for centuries, all in the name of uh, a Lonesome Rhodes or a Huey Long in a $10,000 suit. Um, that all of a sudden, uh, what, I'm, what I, I think of as the actual corruption of conservatism and of libertarianism. Um, is taking place before our eyes in a fit of sort of populist anger. And on the left, you can see it, it's far more institutionalized when you look at how, as I was saying, how the tutors of the Ozarks operate. But it is essentially the same phenomenon on both sides. That in many ways, these principles, you know, I often like to say that, you know, capitalism is the greatest single, liberal democratic capitalism is the single greatest cooperative enterprise for relieving human poverty. Um, uh, in, in world history. It's only got one problem. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't feel cooperative. It doesn't feel communal, right? I mean, you have downstairs a, a portrait of Leonard Reed, you know, the famous author of I Pencil. I'm not going to come to Cato and tell people about I Pencil, but the simple point is, is that um, we have, uh, that capitalism works incredibly well. Liberal democratic capitalism works incredibly well but it doesn't give us the kind of meaning that we want. And our natural human tendency is to look to things like aristocracy, to look to things like monarchy, to feel tribal. And I think during times of economic hardship, when capitalism isn't producing the fruits that are, it was sort of promised to, that temptation gets all the stronger. And that is the real corruption that is going on in America today. And it's very troublesome to me. Because these were hard-fought and hard-won lessons and principles. And if you forget them, there's nothing to say that we'll ever remember them again. Because this stuff only happened once in human history. Um, I want to say just a few other notes from what David had to say. Um, um, I very much like the point about Runnymede being picked because it was a bog. Um, 
anyone who knows anything about Washington, D.C. Uh, can appreciate the importance of having major political agreements formed in a bog, since we are below sea level. And this was the, one of the first instances of government corruption, was that they unloaded this really crappy, swampy land on the federal government. Um, and uh, I also think it was brilliant of David to, I did not realize that there was going to be nearly a century of anniversaries for uh, the Magna Carta, which is a brilliant reason to write a book on the Magna Carta, because it means you're going to get invited to do these kinds of talks um, again and again and again for the next you know, 50 years, um, which, I hope, uh, uh, which I hope is the case with David, because I learned a lot from it. And um, I want to thank you all for coming here. And thank you very much. Thank you, Jonah. Um, we'll now open to Q&A. Uh, please wait to be, uh, to, for the mic to get to you and uh, to be called upon. Um, and uh, uh, th that is partly because we need everybody to understand your question, but also for our people who are watching it on, online. And um, would you please form your question in a form of a question and also state your name and your affiliation if you have one. Yes, sir, right here in front. No one at Runnymede explicitly in favor of limited government. I think the short answer very definitely framed like that is no. It's very clear, however, that Stephen Langton himself, because we have a lot of his academic writings, had reflected very seriously on these kind of themes. I think I can then turn the question, so you were saying, please form um, uh, questions, perhaps also answers should be formed as answers. And if I can, if I can, t if I can turn it round, all medieval government is thought of as limited. There is no notion of actual medieval absolutism. Remember, the very notion of allegiance in the Middle Ages is conceived of as a contract to be accompanied with the possibility of diffidatio, of the renunciation of allegiance, if the, uh, as it were, if the party to whom you owed allegiance had broken that contract. The idea of treason in its modern sense only develops after Magna Carta. What is striking is that none of the barons who'd rebelled against John were punished in any kind of way. And uh, in particular, uh, this again is a remarkable tribute to, to, uh, uh, to, to, to William the Marshal, he goes out of his way to incorporate the leading rebels into the royal government, and they act as witnesses to the reissued Charter of 1216 as an act of completely deliberate compromise. The idea of absolutism, and this I think is something we ought to explore again, um, Absolutism essentially in England is an invention of Henry VIII. It's an invention of when the king seizes control of the church. The reason that all the struggles of the Middle Ages have to be gone over again in the 17th century is because the king had made himself the head of the church. The church is the great resistor of royal authority in the Middle Ages. The key to understanding the development of the Western world is that unlike Islam, unlike um, uh, uh, Russian Orthodoxy, you have the tension of, church, of, of Caesar and God, you know, going right back to that. Um, and, but what the king does, 
does when he seizes the church with the royal supremacy, he takes over the great resisting body. And from the, from the first time you get a theoretical development of absolutism in English, the invariable authors of it are clergy. And they draw on principle. They draw on St. Paul. Honour the powers that be because they are ordained of God. And it's also that that produces an equal and contrary reaction. The great defenders of absolute... I'm sure many of you in this room are lawyers. The great defenders of royal authority in the Middle Ages are lawyers. Lawyers in England only discover liberty when churchmen become more effective defenders of monarchical absolutism than they were. <laughs> they they look for another brief, and it's no and it's no accident that Edward Cook, who had been the most savage royal prosecutor as Attorney General, as does this kind of somersault in the 1620s, and in the Petition of Right, uh, as I mentioned very briefly and didn't really have time to go over it fully, in the Petition of Right, he reduces Magna Carta to a series of principles. But he also then claims for it the validity of something like fundamental law. But then you get a struggle between, as it were, the king as lawgiver. That's one side of the struggle in the English Civil War. And the king as head of the church, that's the royalist position. And, 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 the, 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 and just quickly, and then I must shut up. The, the, the thing that I think is the key, one of the key things about Magna Carta, and it's the most difficult thing for an American audience, Magna Carta is a testament to the importance of avoiding revolution. The remarkable thing about the American Revolution is how little of a revolution it was. Because you, there's no attempt at social revolution. You keep the, ex, the, the entire existing constitutional structure of every state mm -hmm. is more or less retained as it was. Your total the structure of property law remains, and so on and so on and so on. And in contrast with the catastrophe of the French, the Russian, and all the rest of them revolutions. But, but Magna Carta is a splendid testimony to the importance of having a revolutionary movement but making sure it fails. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, next question, uh, gentleman in the back. Yes, sir. Well, sir, my name is Michael Zack. Uh, whatever happened to King Louis? What happened to King Louis? Uh, well, King Louis, how, how do you deal with these problems? First, you defeat him at the Battle of Lincoln, because uh, William the Marshal uh, is a brilliantly good... Uh, uh, by the way, he's never formally king, because he's not crowned. People form allegiance to him, uh, owe, they swear oaths to him, but he's not crowned. And at this point, a coronation is, is essential for royal succession. He's first defeated at the Battle of Lincoln uh, by, in a place that you can still see. The buildings are still the same as they were then. It's completely wonderful when you go up to the high town of Lincoln, past the most ancient house in... From, probably the most ancient inhabited house in, in Europe, the, the Jews' house. As you go up there, you can see the Battle of Lincoln. He's defeated there, William the Marshal, at 70. is capable of leading an army and, and you know, slaughtering the, uh, the, 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 the French commander. And then he's bought out. They do a deal. They buy him out for 10,000 marks. They're so practical. <laughs> right in front
I'm, I'm Walter Olson with the Cato Institute. I wondered if David Stark could say a bit more about the American reception of Magna Carta. You, you spoke a bit about it, but uh, <clears throat> the impression is that the Americans took and ran with Magna Carta and, and teased up principles that perhaps had not exactly been there. And, uh, was this creative in misinterpretation? Uh, uh, our lawyers were important also, weren't they? Uh, I'm delighted you asked that question. I think there is a, there's an entirely separate book to be written on this subject. What Americans do is the influence of Cook and Cook's particular interpretation of Magna Carta is central to your entire constitutional history. Remember, the first American constitution is the constitution of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Edward Cook. And the, it, that embodies the notion that the settlers bring with them the inherent rights of Englishmen. Um, the, uh, there's also a very peculiar American, as it were, uh, descent of Magna Carta. Um, what you do is you take that phrase, which I've used, it's, it's, it, it's not Cook writing, it's Cook speaking. It's actually Cook speaking in the Parliament of 1628. When he says Magna Carta is such a fellow, he will have no sovereign. You take that idea of fundamental law the notion that law can be made fundamental and it can be enforced by judges. And you take that and you make that the central idea of arguably, or one of the central ideas of your constitution. That has no purchase in English politics or English law at all. Because what we do in the revolution of 1688-89 is to exchange royal sovereignty for the sovereignty of parliament. And with a sovereign parliament, you cannot have fundamental law. And what we're doing at the moment, of course, uh, thanks to the inanities of the new Labour government, we are dealing with the absurdity of a sovereign parliament and, and a human rights act. I mean, you know, the, there's a complete intellectual conflict between the two. You're referring to the supremacy of the EU law over oh, well, the British well, Parliament. Well, no, well, if it, no even, even when the law itself, is, even when uh, the human right, what the Human Rights Act does is to try to get round that by incorporating via parliamentary sovereignty uh, the, the, the EU convention into English law. But because it's entrenched it, um, in a fashion which, which no previous statute has been, um, it is creating the most extraordinary series of problems. And again, our attempt at inv invention of a Supreme Court, totally alien to the way our politics has developed. So our politics is profoundly incoherent on this question at the moment. Now, of course, events may, lead, you know, may, may take it in, in, in a different direction. I think also the, 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 the other thing, and it, uh, again, I don't want we were discussing treading on toes again in our little session in the green room. I don't want to tread on toes too much here, but the, the tendency of the revolutionary settlement, heavily influenced, of course, by what's going on in France, uh, uh, what's going on in France, and, and as it were, both before the French Revolution and coloured by the French Revolution afterwards, is, of course, to put this immense emphasis on the ahistorical notion of right. You know, the most profoundly ahistorical so, uh, statement ever written is that all men are born free and equal. It's preposterous, you know, as, as, as Bentham pointed out. It's nonsense on stilts. Um, and I think we need, again, to look very hard at ahistorical rights doctrines. 
which have been so profoundly influential in America, I think they're profoundly dangerous. They're associated with radical neoconnery, the assumption that there, is a un- that there is a single form of world development, that they're associated with our inanity in the face of the Arab Spring, all sorts of things, you know. I really do think, and I'm being very serious. I'm being very, very serious. Yes. <laughs> I hope I've trodden on, on yeah. not simply a toe, but, you know, entire feet of them, yes. <laughs> um, uh, and by the I, way, I am a passionate, come on, I'm a passionate libertarian. Um, uh, but, but I think it's important that we get the grounds of it right. Well, I, I'm not going to take all of the bait there, but um, <laughs> I, I'll nibble around the edges of it. Um, oh, toe, toe nibbling. How <laughs> Duchess um, of York, yes. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or Dick Morris, you know. Um, so I, I do think that uh, – I think it is a, it is a – this is a very important point, I think, in the in the sense that uh, when we were taught, when, when David was mentioning how the, the the revolutionary generation in America considered themselves to be British people who wanted to exert their British their natural British rights or English rights, I should say. English, absolutely yes, English, yeah. and um, and this underscores the fact that our understandings of of liberty and the rule of law, while I think. I have no objection to them being turned into abstract principles. It is important to also remember that they are cultural artifacts. Now, it turns out in America that, at least for a very long time, you didn't actually need to be English to be assimilated to these English principles. But there is a lot of eye-rolling in America about this idea that assimilation matters. And if, if you take it as a proposition that 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 these rights are historically contingent and not abstractions, as David does, or if you think that the, that the, the, the historical process revealed abstract principles that are worth holding on to, either way, that process of assimilation, of convincing people, of educating citizens to be citizens, is really, really important. And it is something that I think that is largely lost on large swaths of the educational establishment um, it's certainly lost in the rhetoric about the EU. Um, it's certainly lost um, in a lot of the, uh, prime, the major media stuff. I mean, you think about maybe Bobby Jindal is too inartful about it. Uh, maybe he's too much of a panderer. I'm open to all of that. But this idea that he is sort of a, a race criminal because he actually believes in assimilating to America and American culture and that people should speak English tells you, some, tells you that there's a profound problem that we haven't figured out how to talk about in this country, that multiculturalism um, is, is a problem if you believe that these sorts of principles derive from a cultural process and aren't something that can just be delivered from on high, and it's something that we need to figure out. Any comments on multiculturalism? I mean, you, are there any specific... No, I'd just, I just like to say we're in total agreement on this. Um, and it, it, you know, it does seem to me to be one of the very great challenges. Um, but equally, what has been characteristic of, of, of both England and America, and of course the whole Anglosphere, is that generally speaking, we have defined citizenship not in the continental tradition of race and language. We've defined it jurisdictionally. And this seems to me to be something that is profoundly precious. But 
we're only going to win these arguments if A, we're brave about them, and B, we're much more explicit about the grounds, and C, finally, we're less lazy. You know, general rights doctrine seems to me just to be lazy. Mm-hmm. Roger Pilon? Yes, I'm Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. I want to pick up on several of the points that David made uh, before Jonah began his nibbling. Uh, and go back to that issue of the fundamental law um, that you quite correctly said, David, differs, uh, it distinguishes situation in England from America. We had a fundamental shift between 1774 when we were issuing remonstrations to the king to restore our rights as Englishmen and 1776 when we rested our declaration on the fundamental rights of mankind as distinct from the rights of England. And you're quite right to point to the idea that in America we have a judiciary that establishes uh, or that secures these fundamental rights. But England also made at least a feint in that direction with Lord Cook and his, uh, his, his uh, opinion in uh, Dr. Bonham's case in mm. 1610. And I wonder if you would say a little bit about why it is that that dictum, as it is often thought of, never did take root in England and why you continued uh, essentially with the parliamentary supremacy, which we don't have in this country. I think simply that the idea of law, English law is supremely positivist. Law is what law is. And, uh, I mean, let me give you, there's, there's, there's a wonderful um, uh, example of this exchange uh, in the trial of Thomas More. Thomas More, uh, uh, convicted of treason and, of course, under, under uh, uh, legal process at that point, is allowed to respond at why he shouldn't be condemned. And he says uh, the reason he shouldn't be condemned is that the, uh, it's not the act of supremacy, it's, it's the act ju- uh, entrenching the Berlin succession. Um, the act is ultra vires. In other words, it's a breach of fundamental law. And it's a breach of fundamental law because England and the English Parliament is merely a parish assembly of the broader body of Christendom. And the part cannot dissent from the whole. That's an argument about fundamental law. The judges are presided over by the Lord Chancellor, by Audley, who clearly, uh, to use a technical expression, is shit-scared. He's absolutely no idea how to respond to this, so he does what every clever politician does. He passes the buck to somebody else. He passes it to the Lord Chief Justice, who does not pause for a second. He says... He doesn't address any of the fundamental arguments. He simply swears his usual oath by St. Julian... If it is an act of parliament, it is good enough. And it, 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 that is English law. And that, that is the entire approach until the, what I would regard as contamination with rights doctrines in the, in the later 20th century. And, and, but again, you see, can we also be really frank? I mean, you, you are obviously historically correct about the two stages of the revolution, but the, the protestations of, 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 of the fundamental rights, you know, fundamental human rights, I mean, it's a mere rhetorical device. 
Isn't it? It doesn't actually change anything. Um, does it, really? Makes people feel better about themselves. I mean, you know, uh, re really to do the, uh, re really to begin to revert to my earlier reputation, according to Wikipedia, uh, you, will <laughs> you will remember Dr. Johnson has the magnificent phrase that nobody yelps more loudly about freedom than a Yankee slave driver. And, and I mean, isn't that all that's going on? Uh, could I, Marion, respond just very quickly? The, <laughs> Who am I to say no? Yes, uh, <laughs> Dr. Johnson. I'm trying to get where I can see you better. And you're yes, not Dr. Johnson also that. famously said that uh, the love of reason is among the faintest of men's passions. Um, but it is more than just, I mean, we take seriously in this country the premise that you, uh, uh, if I may say, ridiculed that all men are created equal. And we take it because it is the bedrock of our whole political system. Uh, and it seems to me that there is a price to be paid for not taking it. And maybe England is paying it with this rights uh, nonsense that is creeping into the European project, of which England is at least playing some part. Whereas we have avoided that. And we've avoided it in part because our judiciary has more or less, or for the most part, uh, subscribed to these fundamental law principles that are set forth implicitly in the Declaration and explicitly in the Constitution. Yeah, if I could just add to that. Um, I think Roger's absolutely right about this. I mean, the dogma of rights, which I agree can be taken too far and all the rest, is nonetheless a fundamental dogma in the United States, and the polling is pretty clear on this, that um, anytime you phrase an issue as expanding rights or expanding liberties, um, it tends to win over time in American politics. And so that may be good or bad, I mean, we can have that argument, but it is not mere rhetoric. Because oh, no, 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 so, sorry. Um, don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, 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 I, uh, what you're really saying, though, is, yes, it is mere rhetoric, but the rhetoric has become very persuasive. Uh, um, uh, 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 that, 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 is, that is the logical, that is the logical... I, I'm saying that the rhetoric actually speaks to people's hearts and aspirations. Actually, the rhetoric's become okay. persuasive. Um, um, that's, that's all we're saying. Um, I, I don't think you've done any more that, you know, you, you certainly haven't because they're unanswerable, the challenges of Bentham, the doctrines of right. I mean, you know, doctrines of, un, of universal human rights or natural rights are nonsense on stilts. They may be very useful nonsense. Sorry, we're going to have a different argument. They may be very useful nonsense. Um, but then we're into a utilitarian argument about whether the uses outweigh the drawbacks. Because it also seems to me, of course, I mean, forgive me, uh, I don't think that the fact that you proclaimed human equality um, necessarily solves the problems of American capitalism or solves the problems of American race relations. In fact, I would say, if you look at the question of race, race relations, arguably, the violent contrast which, which Johnson highlighted between the protestations uh, of the Declaration of Independence and the actual practice of law and property rights in 18th century America may well have exacerbated them. Do you see what I mean? I just think that we need, we need a much more open debate. If we, if we just... Everything that we do is a product of time and circumstance. 
We are creatures of time and circumstance. Our ideas, our words, our institutions, us ourselves. And that just seems, this, this, is, this is Bentham's great starting point. It is the, 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 the man is the measure. And the reified right is, you know, it's just, a reified right is just another form of platonic idealism. But it's also the way we organize institutions. Yeah, no, no, of course it is. It's you, developed, you developed a series of institutional uh, and, and theoretical practices based upon it. But that doesn't necessarily... That, that, that is the American way of doing it. It doesn't mean that it's universally valid. Um, it doesn't mean that it has much purchase outside America. Do you see what I mean? Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Obviously, we don't agree. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Um, just going, uh, Guy Bentley from the Daily Call and News Foundation. Um, going on to another part of this talk, spinning off from multicultures and what's happening here to the political correctness part. Um, specific to um, uh, Dr. Saki, but also to Jonah as well. How do you see political correctness, if you, particularly on college campuses, in the forms of trigger warnings, microaggressions, things that are warning students that they might be exposed to things that will upset them, uh, these kind of things? How do you th think that's? impacting free speech and free debate and do you think that's becoming a increasing problem and what would you say to the activists who are pushing these kind of political correctness changes perhaps uh, are they misguided or are they just taking measures uh, in form of manners that we're just being more sensitive to each other and sensible to each other's um, privileges and disadvantages uh, i'll go first uh well, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I was actually reading a wonderful, I just started it yesterday, this post from Jonathan Haidt where he summarizes these sociologists who make the claim that we are switch. one of the reasons why we see this stuff on college campuses is that we are switching, it's all, it's, it's sort of the, it's the canaries in the coal mine of, of, of how we're switching from a culture of honor to a culture of victimhood. And there is a sense in which people try to out-victim each other. And so they're constantly looking for ways to like claw up over somebody else in terms of their status as victims. I think there's a lot of that going on. I think that one of the places, particularly on elite college campuses, you know, it's funny, Steve Horwitz, so I'm sure a lot of people here know, uh, I credit him with this point. Um, he's working, he's got a book coming out on libertarian, classical liberal family policy. And he makes the point that we have an entire generation of young, uh, an entire generation of a sort of uh, upscale uh, elite kids, right? who basically have uh, third-party inter interceders uh, adjudicating all of their conflicts, right? It used to be, like, I grew up in New York City in the 1970s. No one leapt in to stop me from getting mugged several times. Um, these days, with helicopter parents and the way that schools are run and the way that parents are run, among elite kids, at least, um, you have these kids who never have to sort of really adjudicate interpersonal problems on their own. There's always someone coming in to say, now, Timmy, you play nice with Tommy. And you can, I see this in Washington. I see this in my kid's own school. I worry about this with my own kid. It used to be the kids were just told, get out of the house, go play, come back by dinner time. And now everything is micromanaged and everyone's driving their kids around. Well, so Steve makes the point, he says, well, what would you expect? if you had a generation of kids raised like this? Well, one thing you would expect is that they wouldn't know how 
to deal with small personal affronts to their self-esteem. They've been told that they are the most wonderful person in the world their entire lives, and that, every, that their feelings are sovereign above all, above all things, right? And then someone hurts their feelings. And they feel like, hey, I deserve a trigger warning for that. You know, you should have told me that you were going to hurt my feelings. Are you going to tell me something that upsets my delicate little flower view of the world, right? You might also have raise a whole generation of young women who don't really know how to deal with boorish young men. And so all of a sudden you have this sort of push for things like sexual consent contracts, um, which are spreading across college campuses. And so I, I, think, I think, you know, I'm sort of taking the starkey position on this. I think there's all sorts of left-wing nuttery in political correctness, sort of cultural Marxism and all that, that's been there for a very long time. But what I think is new and why it's becoming so poignant is you actually have a cultural generational shift going on that is meeting that ideological approach and it is marrying to create these unbelievably delicate and, and um, insecure kids who uh, can't deal with the toughness of life very well on elite campuses. I think something is going on very different in the rest of the culture, but among the sort of the, 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 the kids who go to, the, say, the top 100, 200 schools, you're seeing a lot of this stuff. That, that I thought was, was a brilliant formulation of the problem. I mean, uh, I, my in, in, in who's who, uh, I list my recreations as gardening and treading on toes. <laughs> uh, uh, I think that um, freedom of speech and radical freedom of speech is the entire basis of the intellect. We were talking, you know, you, we're talking big language. It is the entire basis of intellectual pro progress since the Renaissance. That everything depends upon that. Everything de should depend on the fact that nothing is sacred. You know, not even the tenets of the American Constitution or the, or, or, or the, or, or, or the Declaration of Independence. Everything should, everything should be challengeable. Everything should be debatable. I cannot see, you know, I taught at Cambridge and LSE for much of my career. I cannot see in, in the natural sciences, it's a different matter. Uh, but I cannot see in, in, the, in, in the humanities and the social sciences how there can be any form of serious activity, uh, academic activity at all without proper freedom of speech. The whole thing merely, be, merely becomes a process of mutual backscratching or alternatively, of course, uh, the writing of your conclusions in language so willfully obscure that nobody can either understand it, let alone be offended by it. Um, um, which, of course, bears a very strong resemblance, doesn't it, to the use of medieval Latin for, um, for, for, for academic discourse. I mean, the people were only ever burned in England uh, if you translated your Latin into English. You could say what, you know, and somebody could understand you. Um, you uh, academic discourse, you were allowed to say pretty much whatever you wanted. The moment you went into English, you, you risked the state. But so, I'm sorry, I'm an absolute freedom of speech. I think that the, the attempts at limiting it, whatever the motive and for whatever the reasons, are fundamentally morally wrong. Uh, thank you. My name's Stephen Morrison, and I'm one of the people that Dr. Starkey referred to earlier, a lawyer in the audience. 
We like precedent, lawyers, and uh, I think I want to come to Mr. Goldberg's aid by referring uh, as to the sister, or the cousin at least, of Magna Carta, the Declaration of Our Broth. And, and I would like to, to hear the comments of uh, both speakers. If the practical essence of American freedom can be traced back to uh, Magna Carta, is it also possible to say that the rhetorical flourish, and indeed this idea that there are inalienable rights, can be traced back to the Declaration of Our Broth? And I, I have a quote if you want me to read it. All right, thank but you. <laughs> No, I think. <laughs> um, I can't say that anybody in, the, uh, in the, s the 17th century and the whole of this discourse that we're talking about would have taken seriously for one second such a savage document. Um, uh, it, it, it seems to me simply not to enter into the political discourse at all. Um, th and again, Scotland's political history is so radically different. I mean, the, decla the Declaration of Our Broth um, is it can be construed as um, a, a, a statement of an assertion of national identity and independence. But then, of course, for what? Um, again, being rude, I think the important thing to understand is that Scotland has only ever, ever had a single point in its history, which is not to be England. <laughs> Scotland has no other meaning whatever. <laughs> this should make the news. Um... Any other questions? Uh, let, let's take these two in front uh, together, and those will be the two last questions of today. Uh, uh, hi, Rick Rosendahl of the Washington Blade. A question for Jonah Goldberg. Uh, given the crazy times we're living in, for example, a liberal like myself supporting marriage equality, finding common ground with Justice Scalia uh -huh. on, the, on the ground of the, the rule of law as applied to a county clerk in Kentucky, has the horrifying possibility occurred to you that in a contest between the Tudors of the Ozarks and the Trump in proletariat, and God bless you for that coinage, <laughs> that the more conservative option in that alternative could possibly be the Tudors of the Ozarks? Actually, this is a very interesting question. I want both of them, and we'll come back to you in, in a moment. Uh, so. Thank you. Uh, Michael Kurtzig, um, formerly of the Department of Agriculture, not exactly the subject at hand here. But I'm intrigued about your mentioning Islam and the Arab Spring. And remind me of a discussion we had at George Washington University about five years ago, maybe a little longer, when the question came up of Sharia law. And the question which I asked was, and I read in The Economist, that the Archbishop of Canterbury had endorsed Sharia courts. There was a, a, a Turkish parliamentarian up in, the, in the panel, and I said to her, I said, what happens when Sharia law contradicts British civil law? And she said, that's a problem. And I was going to say that you're damn right that's a problem, but I didn't answer that. And I wonder what Magna Carta would say about Sharia law and what the problems that England has today with, I wouldn't say the, with Sharia, I'll leave the Sharia law without mentioning anything else. Thank All right, you. So we have gays and Islamic uh, extremism uh, at the very end. Um, please uh, go ahead. Well, I mean, I don't think the question was about gays, right? I mean, the question was about the choice, the, 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 horrible, no good, rotten, very bad choice of picking between the, uh, the Clinton restoration and the Trumpian insurgency. And um, my short answer to that is faced with that choice by gold. Um, immigration, uh, immigration, yes, yes. Uh, Rescind the revolution, yes, yes. Um, uh, 
I, I, everyone's going to have to make their own judgment on that. I, I, I tend to, you know, it's, it's all so confusing right now, right? Because you have, um, in the last 48 hours, you've had Paul Krugman, Warren Buffett, and Elizabeth Warren endorse Donald Trump's economic program. And I am told that my criticism of Donald Trump means I'm not a conservative. And uh, I can't get my head around that yet. Um, but uh, I, my, my short answer is I hope it doesn't have to come to that sort of question. Um, my, my, you know, I've been wrong about this for quite a while now, but I still have to think that at some point people come to their senses and they don't go they don't. They don't force us with that. My guess is that Hillary Clinton will not be the nominee at this point. I'm. 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 I'm feeling. Maybe that'll go away in the next couple of days. But she, I. I think she's got huge problems. And I, my hope is that Donald Trump isn't the nominee. And so I, I'm not dodging the question. It's just I, I. I can't bring myself to deal with the the internal contradictions that you're face you're putting before me. I'm delighted to say I, I don't feel qualified or desirous to comment on private American grief. So I will, <laughs> I, will, uh, uh, I, will, I will leave that one aside. I will go back to your question, if I may, on Magna Carta and Sharia law. English common law has been absolutely clear that it is the only law and that all other laws are on sufferance. And the, uh, the, whole, the whole relationship of church law to, uh, uh, to common law uh, was essentially uh, the king's law in a state of perpetual aggression against church law. And what's very striking, uh, you mentioned all the sort of conventional things that are supposed to come from Magna Carta, like habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is developed as an instrument of the king's law against church law. It's not conceived of as a protection for the rights of the individual. That only happens in the 17th century. Um, uh, but uh, I cannot see any possibility of England recognizing a rival system of law, save in matters of personal relations. The, only, the area that the Archbishop of Canterbury was talking about was essentially marriage law. But then, of course, that itself, as the whole debate over gay marriage, that itself... As, as marriage is so much part of, of, of a system of secular law, um, the, the way that is happening in England, of course, has become very dangerous. Um, you've, you've had Sharia courts establishing themselves, as indeed Jewish courts have done, by mutual consent. Um, as, a kind of, as, as parallel systems of law, um, uh, the moment they actually clash directly, they have to yield. But the problem is, of course, the practice develops the tolerance becomes entrenched. Um, multiculturalism, again. Our desire to welcome. Our desire not to tread on toes. And of course, what is also very striking, it's worked the other way around. The residual church has, I mean, I, I've, Generally speaking, I am I am conservative in many ways, um, uh, but uh, and uh, radical atheist though I am, I don't find the church settlement, the, the, the formal establishment of religion in England, uh, particularly offensive. It may well be coming so, 
because, of course, those groups that take religion much more seriously than the Church of England uh, are seeing the uh, entrenchment of religion in law, uh, this, this decayed, um, hollowed-out national church. They're seeing it as a way of saying, well, ah, yes, religion is recognised in your law. Um, and the, mo the, the most stalwart defenders now of the Anglican establishment are, in fact, Muslims. Well, you see why, don't you? We are the only... Do we all realise this? England is the... Britain is the only country in the world, apart from uh, Iran, where clergy are ex officio legislators. Right? We have 25 bishops sitting in the upper house. And they are, they are starting... As, as they're becoming more politicised, you know, the Church of England was once uh, the Tory party at prayer. It's now becoming the Manchester Guardian at prayer. And, it's, and that, that, make, that makes it very, very much more dangerous. Um, uh, uh, they're also intervening on things like right to die and whatever in a much more upfront passion than they have been doing. They will become much more controversial. All right. Thank you very much. Please join us for lunch upstairs.